This is Habwang. I'm Joe Salvaggi. Welcome to Habwang, a podcast of Pioneer Institute, a think tank in Boston. Unquestionably, the most well-known and respected institution in New England is Harvard University, a brand that casts its long shadow not merely over the many respected educational institutions of the region, but also across our entire nation's scientific, political, and judicial ranks. Such influence may explain why the American public has been captivated by the resignation of its recently appointed president, Dr. Claudine Gay, over the accusations that much of her academic work was tainted by plagiarism. Compounding Harvard's embarrassment was the more troubling account that the university itself, once learning of the credible accusations, chose to dismiss the claims and to intimidate the investigating press with legal retribution. Eventually, the weight of the evidence proved insurmountable to Harvard Corporation's support for President Gay, but outside observers are still left to wonder how such academic corruption could go unnoticed or be sanctioned by any reputable university. How did journalists discover Dr. Gay's misdeeds? What were the motives of the investigators who uncovered the wrongdoings? And what was the chain of events that exposed the public to the academic fraud that even an elite $50 billion university could no longer ignore? My guest today is writer and investigative journalist Chris Burnett. Mr. Burnett was among the first to note and write about the plagiarism in Dr. Gay's academic work. Mr. Burnett will share with us how and where he first learned of the problems with Dr. Gay's research papers and his role in communicating the story to the public. He will share with us how he developed a niche investigating academic integrity and what he hopes his work will do to help improve the reputation of universities and their research. When I return, I'll be joined by writer and journalist Chris Burnett. Okay, we're back. This is Hubwonk. I'm Joe Salvaggi, and I'm now pleased to be joined by writer and investigative reporter Chris Brunette. Welcome to Hubwonk, Chris. Oh, it's very good to be here. I'm uh, in an Airbnb in Romania right now. <laughs> okay, great. Well, that uh, your your uh, role as a global uh, traveler, uh, that's perhaps the subject of, a, of another podcast. I'd love to go deep on what brings you to Romania, but um, we'll sure. maybe get to that uh, if we can tie into our story. But uh, the reason I really was eager to have you as a guest is, um, again, I'm trying to reach for the right analogy. Um, you are, I think, the spark that started off this uh, whole, uh, ex you know, exposing uh, Harvard Pre President Claudine Gay for her plagiarism. Uh, I don't know if you're either, I, I don't know if you're the reference Woodward and Bernstein uh, and their role is in uh, Watergate, or I actually think the better uh, analogy uh, might be either uh, David and Goliath. You're a guy in Romania who uh, took down among one of the most important people in the world. Uh, but I think better the better analogy is uh, Miss o Mrs. O'Leary's cow when she he kicked over the lantern and started the Chicago fire. I think you've started a fire, uh, and um, I'm impressed. So I hope for our listeners you'll will understand your background, how you came to be the person who. Uh, uh, shown a light on uh, Dr. Claudine Gay's academic work. So um, let's start slow. Let's start at the beginning. Uh, I think it's interesting that uh, for a guy who really shook the foundations of one of the most powerful institutions in the U.S., you're actually a Canadian. Uh, how, how did that work? <laughs> right, so I work at an outlet called the American Conservative. And so I have a kind of an inferiority complex because I'm not even American and I work at the American Conservative. And so it's something I'm very upfront about, the fact that I'm Canadian, and I'm kind of a foreigner meddling in American affairs. Um, 
So the Canadian politics, the they're just much more less interesting. <laughs> they're much less interesting. The market is smaller. And I'm just naturally more interested in American politics. And a lot of my friends or contacts, because I've been working as an investigative journalist in academia for past two or three years. And it just so happens like all my friends and contacts work at American universities. And a lot of my stories lead me to American universities. So that's just kind of naturally where I gravitated to. It's a fair a fair thing where there's, I think, 330 million Americans and about, I don't know, 25 million Canadians. So just the sheer size oh. and the, the weight. Um, but I, I think you you have an undergraduate and a master's degree. Did you did you plan to become a investigative journalist when you uh, grew up, as it were? No, I thought I was going to be an economist. Well, I was an economist for the government of Canada. I worked at Statistics Canada, which in America is equivalent to the U.S. Census Bureau and the Bureau of Labor Statistics, it's combined. Um, so I worked for the government, then I got my master's degree, went back to work for the government, and then I worked for the University of Chicago Economics Department as a researcher while applying to PhD programs. And I was gonna apply to a PhD in economics, and I thought I was gonna be a PhD economist. And uh, I got rejected from every program I applied to, which is, a whole nother story like that's that was kind of my villain origin story because uh i was blackballed from the profession they didn't want me for political reasons and so i was very angry and bitter about that so i started blogging angrily about academia i'm very i mellowed out in the past couple of years like i started out really bitter and angry and i was like blogging about how corrupt academia is but then i mean i still do that but i'm a lot less impassioned when I do it now. Like I'm a lot more neutral, just the facts. Um, so yeah, I mean, that's, that's how I started writing about academia. I wanted to be in academia and then they wouldn't let me in. So I started burn the system to the ground kind of with my Substack, And then, um, I've really come around the past couple of years to not burning it down, but rather trying to, uh, reform it rather than burn it down. And I, I, I uh, increasingly have hope that uh, the future of academia can still be um, saved. Well, I think that that's a wonderful origin story, as you as you describe it, uh, in that you are aspiring to be a, uh, an academic and an economist. Uh, I'll, I'll admit to sharing your vision, but uh, it was actually my parents who shot me down. They said, uh, some, uh, a PhD, the definition of a PhD is one who foregoes current income so as to forego future income, which they said, certainly uh, in this world with your brain, you might be able to do more than become an academic. Uh, but that's that's my story. Uh, let's get let's sit, focus on on you. Uh, what made you you said you had this sort of chip on your shoulder that uh, academia may have uh, uh, corruption. What, what made you sort of focus on, um, let's say, uh, uh, dubious uh, uh, research or um, uh, academics who may have made claims that weren't valid, but, you know, uh, essentially poor research or poor, poorly attributed research. So the biggest reason why I started writing about this is because I saw the niche. It was unfilled. Um, there's just so much corruption in academia or like so much falsified data, so much research misconduct going on. And if you look at the current state of media in America, there's like, I can count the number of report investigative reporters on one hand who look at this stuff. Really, it's like 
really a couple people and then all the other outlets pretty much every outlet in the country they just come they cover the stories once they've already happened and they just like provide a summary of stories that have happened but there's almost nobody breaking news stories and so i figured out uh just i i figured out how to break these stories and cover them for the first time and put them out there into the world and um that's really my bread and butter because i uh I break academic scandals. Yeah, no, I think I think this is uh, you know can, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I think it's also uh, a tech uh, uh, a niche that whose time has come. I mean, 20 years ago, all of these uh, research papers are tucked away in some file cabinet that you know nobody expected to be able to read them, let alone be able to parse them for incidents of plagiarism. So, really, it, it, I guess it's sort of dovetails nicely. Uh, we we can uh, uh, parse an individual's work and actually use technology to look for incidents where you know uh, work is improperly attributed so let, let's uh, let's focus now on um where you train your fire right there's lots of academics lots of institutions and you chose uh the president or at the at the time when you first started she was the dean of the faculty of uh, arts and sciences or gsas i guess locals call it um what made you focus on uh, someone like dr gay's research so she was not my initial target or my initial focus on Harvard was because I received an anonymous tip, which is how many of my stories start. Like I don't just aimlessly search through every paper in the world looking for something wrong with them, right? A lot of them are given to me on a silver platter, which I'm very grateful for. But I also had to work hard to like gain a reputation to the point where people bring me these stories now. So. um yeah, I got an email with a document, and the document was an internal Harvard report on data fabrication by a professor in the Harvard School of Government. And it was just like this guy, his name doesn't really matter for our context. <laughs> he fabricated some data, and so I was investigating him based on the leaked report, and then once I started pulling at his strings, what I, it led me directly to Claudine Gay, pretty much. She was the one who covered covered up for him. She was the one who like signed off on the report that swept it all under the rug. Like, and uh, and so I investigated him, then that led me to her. And then as soon as I started looking at her, like her immediately, immediately I saw how unqualified she was. Like, it's not, everyone in the world knows how unqualified she is now. Like they can see she's only written 11 papers and they're all about, they're all kind of bad papers or broken or flawed or just, even if they weren't statistically flawed, they're not still not very important or deep. They're just like not great papers. And there's not very much of them and they're not cited very much. And she doesn't have a book and she's never won any fundraising or been given any grants or money like her her cv is not good enough for a tenured professor at harvard just flat out and so because i've spent the past couple of years investigating professors like i can i like i can look at her cv and i can like right away anyone who knows anything about academia looks at her cv and they're like wait like how is she such a high-ranking dean at harvard and so that's what I saw. And then I dug deeper. And then she's also has her hands in all these different scandals, like Roland Fryer, Ronald Sullivan, like five, there's like five more scandals she's involved in. And she there's like new scandals every day. 
or not now, I guess a few <laughs> a few weeks ago right, there were scandals every day. She's a, uh, but there's more coming soon. Yes, well, I don't want to get ahead of ourselves. Um, and we don't need to expose anything on this podcast. I want to focus just on your hard work. I, I just say for our listeners, somebody might be out there saying, look, uh, she's not qualified. These are, you know, a value judgment, normative judgments. Who, who are you to say who's qualified, who, who's not? But you're looking at a lot of different academics, right? You're not just saying, okay, hmm, you know, uh, what what do I imagine a, a dean of a, a graduate school of Harvard or ultimately the president should look like? But you you've uncovered quite a few other um, uh, uh, incidents of, of plagiarism in in let's say. Uh, institutions that aren't Harvard, uh, people who are not, uh, you know, flawed and gay, these, you know, your mm -hmm. your investigations covers a wide uh, gamut of, of, of schools and, and uh, academic fields. Is that right? Right. So I've written, I don't know, like 200 or 300 articles, and most of those are about economics or finance or accounting. And so that's kind of tangential to political science, which, which is like I have written about political science, but that's not my wheelhouse. My wheelhouse is more like economics, um, but they're still related. And so I, I have a. Yeah, I mean, to me, she was just another academic <laughs> like uh, I've seen so many academics I can. Uh, it's hard to judge their work without reading all their papers, right? But. I can get a feel for how qualified they are based on what their CV looks like. And for her, she was granted tenure at Stanford uh, with four papers to her name at the time. And so I I happen to know for a fact, like nobody is granted tenure at Stanford with four papers. <laughs> so really that was uh, the beginning of her career failing upwards. Like she was the most egregious case of tenure that Stanford had ever seen. And that's not an exaggeration. Like she's probably the worst case of tenure in Stanford's history. And then she she parlayed that into an associate job at Harvard, and then she's been failing upwards ever since. In your research, you were looking to see look for uh, incidents of plagiarism, and you know it's safe to say that there's always a possibility that. Um, uh, two paragraphs could sound similar if they're both in the same line of uh, study. How do you know, how do you in your study, uh, in your research or in your investigative journalism know the difference between plagiarism and where someone is just simply talking about the same subject and the, the sentence sounds similar? There's different types of plagiarism. There is verbatim plagiarism, which is largely what Claudine Gay was guilty of. So it, it wasn't rocket science to compare passages of text she plagiarized from to her text, and it, it was literally copy-pasted. And yeah, I mean, there's not much to it other than to look at it and to see it was copy-pasted, like big chunks of paragraphs at a time. Uh, but the much harder form to detect is mosaic plagiarism, which is where you take different sources and you kind of like copy paste them all together and jumble it up a little bit. Um, she did have several examples of that too, but I was very fortunate because I would like to say I did all the legwork myself, but I didn't. <laughs> I received a tip, which is how I find her plagiarism, and it was more or less delivered to me on a silver platter. And that's one of the big mysteries in this whole Claudine Gay scandal is um, 
I was not the only journalist to receive a tip. I was the first to report on it. But after I report on it, reported on it, there was a very uh, well-planned out drip of plagiarism. <laughs> like, uh, after I reported on it, which got the ball rolling and opened up the New York Post and the Washington Free Beacon to publish their reporting because they're always afraid to take the legal risk, right? Um, so what I did by reporting on it first was uh, I kind of opened the floodgates for all the other plagiarism accusations to come flooding in. Sure. So, uh, good. I, I want to talk about timeline here because I think what you make is a very important point. There are other organizations, perhaps larger ones, but they, of course, if they're incorporated or they have shareholders or owners, there's always a risk that, you know, any sort of allegation would be met with tons of litigation, right? Uh, someone could be sued for just essentially saying uh, academic XYZ plagiarized. You know, this is, might be considered slanderous or libel. Um, what was going on then? So you, you draw a picture for us. You discover, you got the, as you say, the tip on a silver platter. What was uh, uh, Dr. Gay's um, position at the time? Was she, she's not the president of Harvard. She's still the- She was the president. I got I got the tip right around her congressional hearing, okay. which is really um, what brought all the national attention to her. Um, but for a couple months before the congressional hearings, we know that the New York Post had a much more substantive tip and they had worse cases of plagiarism, but they did not report on them because Harvard threatened them with lawsuits specifically if they reported on the plagiarism. And so after we report, after I reported on it, the New York Post finally felt comfortable to come out and say, look, hey, we're, we're reporting on it too. And we're also reporting on the fact that Harvard threatened us with lawsuits that we're now not worried about because, like, uh, they'd have to sue everybody. <laughs> and also they wouldn't win the lawsuits because uh, there were so much, so many widespread allegations of plagiarism that it was uh, too much. To, well, they did deny it, but it really was too much to reasonably deny in a court of law. Okay, so you're sort of the uh, David and they're the Goliath. But in a sense, what you're saying is the New York Post was comfortable in a sense, posting uh, uh, both the fact that there's these are blatant, well-documented incidents of plagiarism, but also the threats that were levied against the New York Post by Harvard to say, if you print these allegations, we will sue you. That's now uh, public knowledge, right? People, it was a pretty um, tough, bare-knuckled, lawyerly way of saying, print this and you know we'll, we'll see in court, right? Why wouldn't someone like you be afraid of, of, a, of a similar threat? Well, that's a good question. I, first of all, I don't live in America. And second of all, I don't really have anything to lose. I'm what they call judgment-proof. Right. Um, well, not that I print lies, right? Like, I don't use that as a chance to print lies. But I'm just like, uh, I don't know. If Harvard were to sue me, it would just be great publicity for me. Um. Right. And they they know that too. Like they would look silly suing an, just a random independent journalist for reporting the truth. Right. Um, so I I get threatened quite often with lawsuits in my line of work, and uh, yeah, it's just um, people people really try to intimidate me with lawsuits, I guess, but I can't be, <laughs> no, I, I don't want to say I'm brave because it, it would be much harder for me to do what I, 
do if I had like a family and a mortgage and uh, I was, I would have to be much more conservative in what I report, I guess. I'm kind of, uh, I don't know. I, I want to say loose cannon, but that makes it sound like I'm uh, being like uh, not careful in what I do. I'm very careful in what I do, but uh, even even if you report carefully, the stakes are always high because people lose their jobs, right? Like I've gotten several people fired from their jobs, and it's it weighs heavily on me every time. But ultimately they they bring it on themselves like claudine gay brought it on herself by leaving a trail of bodies in her professional wake yeah and no, uh, it, yeah no that, that that's fair i would say that two things one is um you're you trade in um the truth right you have to be an investigative journalist if you're spreading lies you're you know the, the point of the realm is is veracity if you're spreading lies well okay you might have a niche with some people but really you'll you'll be marginalized fairly quickly and also as again if you're talking about a liability you know the truth is an absolute defense against charges of libel and and slander right so if ultimately what you assert is proven true you have a perfect defense or do i not have the facts right yeah so i'm not a legal expert but i've uh, gotten into enough legal arguments with people suing or threatening to sue me over reporting that I know really what I can't do is knowingly print lies about anyone. That's really the red line is knowing that you print lies about someone, which I don't do. Okay. So now, uh, again, this was not a good year for, for Harvard. First, they had the, um, they lost a Harvard, uh, student for fair admission, uh, Supreme court case. Um, uh, Dr. Gay did not impress anybody with her testimony in front of the uh, the uh, in front of Congress about the uh, accusations of anti-Semitism or the lack of you know um, prevention of anti-Semitism acts sure. on on the campus. And now comes this allegation of of uh, plagiarism beyond what the, uh, the the strongly worded letter from the attorneys targeting the New York Post. What did Harvard present sort of to the public now that we're in the you know, court of public opinion? What did Harvard say? Okay, there are these allegations. What was their next move? Um, did they say, okay, you know, great, we'll, we'll fire her? Or did they make some uh, sort of defense of, of her, her past uh, academic, let's say, misdeeds? So I think Harvard really jumped the gun because after the first one or two plagiarism accusations came out, they unanimously stood behind her after a one-day investigation, right? Usually a proper investigation into this sort of thing takes six to 24 months. And they did it in one day. And they said, she's clear of all allegations in one day. So that kind of proves that they didn't really do an investigation. Um, but I think, Oh, oh, so yeah, they stood up for her, and then I think they kind of regretted so forcefully coming out and saying there was no plagiarism because the plagiarism accusations kept dripping out, and which is why I think this was all very well coordinated by whoever compiled the plagiarism accusations, right? Um, after everything went down, Lee Fang is a reporter on Substack. I'm not sure if you're familiar with him, but he published the full dossier that was sent to several news organizations and several high-profile reporters. And it had all the different plagiarism accusations that dripped out. Um, 
And so this was floating around out there to these big news organizations and they drifted out like over the course of a couple of weeks and it was very well executed, like a little suspicious, uh, suspiciously well ex executed. And I suspect, I don't actually know who my anonymous tip was and I could be wrong here, but I suspect that they gave me a little bit instead of the whole thing because they gave like the real meat to the New York Post, and which makes sense. Like they're the big outlet, right? Uh, and they gave me kind of like uh, the cherry on, on top. <laughs> so I, I got credit for being the first one to report the cherry on top. But th I think they gave the real meat to the New York Post. And one more thing I want to add is that in Claudine Gay's resignation letter, she wrote that when she became aware of the plagiarism accusations, she immediately made the corrections and apologized, which is just not true. <laughs> because, because of the New York Post investigation, we know that she was made aware of them several months ago. So for her to say, and what she did was she aggressively lawyered up and tried to shut them down and sweep them under the rug. So we know that that's just a flat out lie in her resignation letter that she immediately took full accountability and correct made, made corrections to her papers, which is which came several months after she was first aware. Yeah. So this is a complicated question. So I'd say, OK, it's, it's probably not a, a, an uncommon human uh, characteristic to deny one has done wrong and uh, and and perhaps try to cover it up. What puzzles me is the Harvard Corporation, the one who's essentially made her president and, and essentially supports her. Um, they know what plagiarism is. I mean, uh, I'll, I'll share with you my first day uh, as a graduate student at Harvard. The first book they assigned you is this book um, called uh, what is it? Har um, Writing with Sources: A Guide for Harvard Students, and it shows a little picture of a student with a book bag walking on the Widener Library steps, and it's a real, you know, basic guide to how to not plagiarize, how to uh, properly attribute all your work when you're writing. How is it that Harvard Corporation, who essentially wrote the book on plagiarism, how would they, uh, again, after one day and after such egregious uh, um, incidents of, of, of plagiarism, why would they um, say there's nothing here, move along? Well, you know, it, clearly they must have known it was going to be exposed. Well, you know, what, what was behind all of this? I think that they thought it would blow over uh, because it really dragged on for so many news cycles. Like, I thought they thought it would go away after one or two news cycles, but it kept going for weeks on end. And it is this is the sustained pressure from not only conservative media, but like the entire media. I think really they were not expecting that amount of pressure. And so they're used to dealing with scandals, right? They have several scandals a year in all their departments for whatever. And they they know that um, usually the media doesn't care that much about academic scandals. And so they know that if they just like give a polite anodyne statement that the media will maybe cover it once and then go away. And uh, this was such a different beast because uh, Claudine Gay was 
so so egregious and uh it just captured the public's imagination to such an extent that it, it couldn't go away and they weren't expecting such a huge media circus from the right and from the left like the New York uh, Times, the Washington Post, the Atlantic, CNN, NBC, they all came around to our side eventually. And I think uh, it was just uh, too much media pressure from every side and nonstop that uh, she had to go. They couldn't sweep it under They could not sweep it under the rug. Yeah. Uh, so again, um, I... Uh... Perhaps because, uh, you know, I, I went to the Kennedy School, I get all the stuff in real time. I get all these letters from the Harvard Corporation and from uh, Claudine Gay. Um, right. I read them all. I'm sure you did as well, talking about her well her resignation letter, Harvard's account of her resignation letter, thanking her for her service effectively. And then ultimately she wrote a, a, a an opinion piece in the New York Times a few days later. In reading all of that, and again, this person is caught dead to rights in an academic scandal as the president of the most prestigious college on earth, dead to rights, no, uh, um, you know, no room for wiggle here. Uh, you can't retroactively, you know, fix your papers and, and add um, attributions 20 years later. Do you, after reading those and being in the front, front row of this scandal, were you satisfied with either her resignation, what, with what Harvard had said was the reason for her resignation and her own account of, you know, what happened? Uh, that she wrote in the New York Times a few days later. Uh, I'll take it. <laughs> like, uh, she does still have her $900,000 salary, right? And she still has tenure, and she still has her PhD. Like, maybe in a perfect world, her PhD would be revoked and she'd be fired for cause. Um, but that's a lot to ask. <laughs> and uh, I, I think we have to take the victory where we can find it. There's a rumor going around that, which is unsubstantiated, but it is a rumor going around that she resigned because she apparently it was about to come out that there were worse problems with her data, right? Uh, which we haven't spoken about yet, I don't think. So there's the plagiarism accusations, and then there's the data impropriety accusations. Two different things. She fiddled with her data, allegedly, and, or she refused to release it. She refused to share it. And there's a bunch of red flags in her papers that indicate she may have uh, manipulated or fabricated data. And so that's what people are looking into now. And supposedly, someone has spent several months doing full replications of her paper to try to prove the data fabrication. And they say that they presented their research formally to Harvard. And this, right as soon as they presented their research to Harvard, supposedly, is when she stepped down. Right. So let me interrupt and say, look, I, we don't like to peddle in rumors here on Hublong. I, I, you know, I'm usually like timeout right. rumors. Well, let's separate fact from fiction or what, what we know from what we might know. It's maybe alleged that there are some uh, inconsistencies in her data, whether it's fudged or fabricated, we don't know. What we do know is she wouldn't share that data. So, you know, the rumor is only because the data isn't shared. You know, you can speculate that this data that nobody can see was fabricated. But the only way to really, you know, defend yourself is to expose, you know, share the data and say, you know, look, I, I may have, you know, forgot to, you know, 
carry the, the one or, you know, some of my lines may have been wrong or some of my assumptions may have been flawed, but, you know, the data is the data. So, you know, judge me on that. What would you say to that? I mean, do I have it about right? What, what we know and what we don't know? Yeah, well, it's, there are, the red flags are pretty glaringly red flags in your data. Like the coefficients change from one version of her paper to the next, but like that, that would be the big thing. Like there's no way to change your coefficients that drastically without um, changing your data pretty much. <laughs> um, yeah. So, so yeah. Sorry, so, yeah. Yeah, go ahead. So, I think this is this is this is good. I, I want to like then say, okay, we're we're, we're hyper focused on Claudine Gay um, and her her work. Um, what do you think? You're you're really hit it out of the park with this, and you're sort of you're on, on the short list of people who really got this story into the public's eye. What do you hope? Let's say, who's the next person? I, I don't know. Uh, there's certainly been all kinds of. Um, uh, uh, um, University presidents have stepped down for uh, academic impropriety. I think Stanford, uh, you know, not long ago, a year ago. What what do you hope to achieve by exposing uh, people who have either fudged their work or borrowed their work inappropriately? What what's your goal? Um, you know, in, in taking on these uh, uh, paragons of of education in our higher education institutions. I wish I could tell you my goal was to dismantle wokeness or dismantle the DEI or uh, reform America's institutions. Like, it all sounds great to have these big lofty goals, but really it just bugs me that uh, there's fake papers out there. <laughs> like, that's what it comes down to. Like, I, I told you, I have written, I have investigated like dozens or hundreds of these research misconduct cases and uh i do it for their love of the game basically um it, and so what my goal is is uh i don't know on on some level it's uh there's a personal motivation in it for me because when i whenever i get a good story i get a lot of subscribers right my whole life revolves around getting subscribers. And if I were reported on a big research misconduct case, I get subscribers. And um, yeah, I mean, I am trying to make the world a better place by making it a little bit more honest. Uh, but it's also, it's fun for me too. Like, uh, <laughs> it sounds, uh, some it's not some people's idea of fun to track plagiarism, <laughs> but it's uh, satisfying. Like I was following the story for, two years before uh, it ever got traction, right? So I've been, uh, yeah, it's like satisfying and vindicated to like work on something for that long and uh, finally convince America that I'm right. <laughs> like not that, sorry, not that I had uh, plagiarism accusations two years ago, but like I had all, all the other accusations against her two years ago and now they're finally coming into the mainstream and I'm just glad I could bring them into the mainstream because they're the truth. What, what I find uh, useful about your uh, investigative journalism is because I, I love, uh, let's say, academia. I love um, research. Uh, it's a hobby at, at the very least, but I, I really uh, am jealous of people who get the opportunity to do it for a living. Um, to me, when I talk to my, my friends with you know, more PhDs than, than and you can imagine, 
I say, you know, look, people admire you not because you're smart, though you are, or not because you work hard, though you do. I think at the end of the day, what was most admirable about academics, in my view, is their integrity, meaning they have to have the courage to, to do research and accept the results without any bias. They have to say, look, I, I have a hypothesis. I'm going to test it and I might be wrong. And, and you know, that's that's research. That's life. You know, we, half of what we know is wrong. We just don't know which half. That's why we do research. Do you think really with Harvard defending uh, uh, Claude and Gay and, and she defending herself and really as this passes, no one's looking at Harvard and saying, how is it that you are tolerating indeed being an accessory to these kinds of broad uh, um, uh, research? You know, uh, you, know it, you may be Harvard and say, look, we're, we're so big. We're $50 billion. You can't touch us. What I'd say is, but the coin of the realm is your reputation, your integrity. If you've lost your integrity, no one's smart enough to to have respect for much longer. Do you see it this way? Do you see this sort of like this disease of, of lack of integrity is permeating all of Harvard and, and really going to shake it to its foundation until it reflects and reforms its its way? I mean, I don't want to put words in your mouth. I'm, these are my words. But sure. is that really what, what what concerns you? I think the more tangible disease is political science itself. <laughs> like it, it's easy to have a bias in political science, and like it's easy to have political opinions in political science, and then have your research fit those political opinions. It's much harder in uh, I don't know math like nobody in math has a a bias about a worldview that they're trying to prove right they're just trying to get to the truth because there's an objective truth that they can prove using math and science but in political science it's um it's all like power games and uh politics and uh like that that's really why <laughs> why wokeness or DEI thrives in those um in in that field specifically <laughs> like that's where it's the worst because uh it's not a science it's a social social science so it's all storytelling and it's like who can tell the best most compelling story and um I'm not sure if that answered your question which I forget <laughs> but no, no, uh, no, no, that's, I'm, that's... I'm biased against political science that that's that that's fair, and I, you know, um, per, perhaps um, I'm too sure of my principles, uh, uh, or my I, I'm I'm blind to my own bias. But I think uh, for my two cents, and again, I'm, I'm I'll uh, editorialize here before we sort of wrap it up, and I'll say I think though political science is is vul more vulnerable than perhaps hard sciences. One, uh, you know, this podcast started during COVID. We saw all kinds of uh, political bias uh, dripping into uh, medical or public health advice with wisdom of hindsight. It was all garbage. Um, but we also see, you know, I'm getting, I, 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 go, I get newsletters from the School of Public Health and the Chan School of Public Health advising doctors how to talk to your patients about climate change. I'm like, what the heck does a doctor know about climate change? And why, how is it that their place? I'm like, if you think there's a science that has escaped this agenda or being politicized, you know, and, and again, in my view, if you are highly politicized and you can't keep your politics out of your research, you ought to recuse yourself. You ought to stop doing research. It, 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 I had Judith Curry on, she's an environmental scientist. 
And she had a great quotation from her books that says, when you mix politics and science, you get politics, which is to say science cannot defend itself against a political agenda. It, you know, all, uh, the only thing defending science is the integrity of the scientists. And, uh, and if that's gone, you know, it's over. So anyway, I, 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 that's, I, I've editorial too, editorialized too much in this podcast. I want to give our listeners a chance and for you to um, plug your your Substack, your your writing, uh, you sustain yourself with membership, uh, paid membership. Um, so let's, you know, where where are your uh, where can our listeners find read about you and perhaps even choose to subscribe uh, to to your uh, writing? Sure. So what I tell people when they ask me is, uh, I say become a free subscriber, and that's more than I could ever ask. <laughs> like. I, the worst part of my job is asking people for money. So I try to do that as little as possible, although I do need the money. I uh, <laughs> Okay, so it's called Carl Stack. Carl with a K, Carl Stack. And that's uh, my my nickname from high school is Carl, which is the, why my Substack is named Carl Stack. People ask me about the name sometimes. Yeah. And if you just Google Carl Stack, it's the first result. Indeed. And um, are you going to continue along this line of uh, investigation? As you say, you've been I've re- your most recent pieces are are um, uh, letters that you've received from academics. I don't think they're all at Harvard, but people who are genuine academics with integrity who have said, keep up the good work. You know, the the academy needs people like you. Do I have that about right? Yeah, well, I'm actually a little bit worried that I pigeonholed myself into academia by being too successful. <laughs> because uh, so many of my subscribers now are just uh, academics, and they expect they, and they want me to write about academia more than anything. And I do like writing about academia, but I don't know. Like, uh, there's a whole world out there. <laughs> I feel bad about writing about academia sometimes because uh, I don't know. It makes me feel like I'm in high school, stuck in the past. Like, I'm like a 20-year-old still showing up to high school parties. Um, so I'm trying to branch out a little bit like I used to in the past. But uh, right now, I just have so many tips from academ- from academics that I have no choice but to keep following up those tips. Well, well indeed. And, and there's some people throwing money at this this science, this concept of, of investigating academia. So even if you leave the field, some other people are on there. I believe that what is it? The uh, I think he's always labeled the billionaire. Um, Bill Ackman uh, has uh, you know, made it his cause and has said, "Okay, look, if you want to pursue this, uh, I will back you." Uh, I think his his goal is not to tear down the academy, but to actually to help it steer towards its original liberal intent, which is you know pursuit of truth rather than the um, enforcement of 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 uh, ideology. So. Um, you know, even if you do branch out and go onto the big wide world and leave your high school party, uh, others will join the fight and, and keep this going. So thank you very much for joining me today, Chris. Uh, I know you're, you said we're, forgive me, in uh, Bulgaria? Romania. Romania. I'm yeah, sorry. Well, yeah, not to get too much into my personal story, but I'm Canadian, right? And I'm very angry and bitter and sad about the country of Canada. And so I left. And now I'm traveling the world aimlessly. <laughs> You're a flanner. You're a, you know, a, a citizen of the world. Yeah, Don't sure. enjoy it. Um, you'll, you, you're changing the world from where you are in Romania. So um, God bless. Thank you for joining me. Uh, what's must be late there today. 
I'm, I really appreciate it. I will continue to read you. I will, uh, I subscribe and wherever your research takes you, I will follow. So thank you for joining me. Thanks. And so one last thing, as, as Claudine Gay was getting fired, I was in the mountains in Greece in a little tiny hut. So I was kind of just like chuckling at the absurdity, absurdity of it as it was happening, because I was like, in a in the cheapest Airbnb in Greece, in a hut, <laughs> struggling for to get Wi-Fi as I was getting her fired. <laughs> um, it was just a very funny situation. Well, true. Again, I started the conversation with saying David and Goliath. You're truly a David, and you did bring down a Goliath. So we're all we're all better for it. Thank you for for your work, and thanks for joining me today. Thanks for having me. Pleasure. This has been another episode of Hubwonk. If you enjoyed today's show, there are several ways to support Hubwonk and Pioneer Institute. It would be easier for you and better for us if you subscribe to Hubwonk on your iTunes podcatcher. It would make it easier for others to find us if you offer a five-star rating or a favorable review. We're grateful if you want to share Hubwonk with friends. If you have ideas or comments or suggestions for me about future episode topics, you're welcome to email me at hubwonk at pioneerinstitute.org. Please join me next week for a new episode of Hubwonk. Hubwonk.